Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 444 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday, actually it is a Thursday, uh, May 27th. 2010, and I should know that because I'm about to go on vacation for a long Memorial Day weekend up to my bug out location, and since I'm going to do that, I'm going to talk about bug out locations today, but a bit different than what I have. You see, folks, um, at the point that we, we purchased the property for our bug out location, we had a lot of really uh, good things come together. We had, we had worked down our debt. We had uh, a lot of flexibility. We also had the ability to, to actually uh, lease it to somebody for three years, which helped out a lot with making the initial purchase. And um, it doesn't always come together that way for people. And sometimes folks would like to have a fallback location, like to have a bug-out location, like to have a little vacation property somewhere you can go hang out on, but, you know, drop in $100,000 or $80,000 or $180,000 or anything in between or over just isn't in the cards for them right now. And they begin to think, well, that bug-out location stuff's the yuppie survivalist, the guy with money. It's not for me. Uh, I'm going to talk to you today about how to put together a very low-cost uh, bug out location is as dirt cheap as you can make it and still have something and have that be something that's really an investment that you can be working on and improving in your future we've talked about this before not quite from the angle we're going to talk about it today uh, hopefully it'll get a lot of people excited and I think maybe uh, it'll get Maybe it'll open your horizons as to what's possible. And that's really what I try to do with this show as often as I can, is, is open your mind uh, to how you can accomplish things versus looking at things and saying, I wish I could do them. Um, so kind of in that vein is what today's show is going to be about. Before we do that, though, we do have to go ahead and take care of the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Common Sense Prep, which delivers what it promises. No paranoia, just common sense for all your prepping needs. All kinds of really great, cool stuff. Some pretty cool water harvesting stuff. A great selection of Paladin Press books. That's some of the best prepper reading you'll ever get your hands on are the books from Paladin Press. And remember, if you're a member of the Support Brigade, you get all of their Paladin Press books at 15% off. There's a special link to use in your member support area. Next up today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is the source, as far as I'm concerned, for whole herb and herbal preparation and information about what to do with them. Extremely helpful website, extremely helpful on the phone. And they have a really great program called their Preferred Member Program, $50 a year. 25% off everything they sell. Members support brigade members. All you got to do is make a phone call. Give them a code that's in your member support area. And uh, when you give them that, they'll set you up as a preferred member for free. 25% off everything 
forever. That pays for your whole first year of the Members Brigade. So a little extra on the Members Brigade today just because of the two sponsors and the things that they're doing for MSB. Uh, more on that in just a second because we are running a special while I'm on vacation. I think that's only fair. Before that, though, I want to remind you, check out our gear shop. Um, we just put this really cool French press tumbler mug into the gear shop. It's going to sell for, I think, $32.50 is the final price on it. It's for sale in pre-orders right now at $27. Um, we were going to take a certain number of orders and then and then shut that off. It will shut off on Friday because I've already told Tiffany that she must shut it off on Friday and put it up to the full price. Uh, but I'm going to let it run till Friday. We've had well over a hundred of them ordered already. I'm really shocked at how much people really want this thing, so I'm going to keep it open at the special price. That helps us put a lot of them in stock for the long term. Um, and it's just an awesome product. I did a video on it. So if you go to store.survivalpodcast.net or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on our store, our gear shop uh, logo there, uh, you'll be able to order that mug. It's right on the front page right now. And, again, you'll get it for $27 a unit. And if nothing else, check out the YouTube video on it. I think you'll like it. And if you got a friend that you'd kind of like to spread the whole prepper message to, but they're not really open to it, but they like coffee, Get them one of these. There's no such thing as a coffee drinker that won't love this. Last but not least today, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only only to members. Discounts to about 20 different vendors, uh, including the two that I just gave you there, the stuff with uh, 15% off all the Paladin Press books at Common Sense Prep, uh, and uh, a free premium membership to Western Botanicals. Uh, you'll also get a lot of other really great stuff. And right now, through Memorial Day, through until midnight on Memorial Day, I am running a special. $30 for your first year. It's as cheap as it's ever been. It's as cheap as it ever will be for a year. Uh, so $30 for your first year of the Members Brigade. $50 a year after that if you choose to stay a member. Um, but the, the code is PATRIOT. I figured it's Memorial Day. Let's make it an appropriate code. Patriot, all lowercase letters, first year for 30 bucks. I'm not emailing it out to the list. I decided I'm not even posting it in the forum. Only listeners uh, to the show uh, that listen to Wednesday and Thursday's show will even know that this happened. And if you don't listen before Memorial Day, you won't get a chance at this discount. But hold tight, there may be another one. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. So as I said in the intro segment, uh, we're going to talk about bug out locations today, and specifically kind of the low end, uh, down and dirty, simplistic bug out location is as simple as we can make it to have a place to go. Um, I use a website quite often when I'm looking around at properties, everything from raw land to uh, to really big palatial estates that I would never even buy. I just like to daydream once in a while about owning a thousand acres of cattle ranch land or something like that. And it's really a cool site. It's called United Country. And my plan today was just to give you some real-time examples of what's available at, say, let's say lots in the neighborhood of two to five acres uh, all across the country, completely raw land, and say, you know, here's one for 5000 here's one for 7000 Unfortunately, this great website, United Country, is not working this morning, so you'll have to take my word for it. Folks, there's a lot of land out there. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with their database connection or their site works fine. As soon as you run a search, it just craps the bed. Um, but there is land all over the place for sale. And odds are, somewhere near where you live, within two to three hours of you, is a fairly remote location. And I don't mean remote like the mountains of Idaho remote. I, I don't mean that, you know, sawtooth wilderness or 
you know, something like that, or uh, Bitterroot Mountains Remote. Uh, and those are great places. And, folks, I'll tell you what, there's a piece of my soul that's been living in the Bitterroot Mountains of Montana since the last time I was there, and the only way I can ever reconnect with that piece of my soul is to go there. I understand the desire to be that remote, but I'm also a realist. And I understand that if I lived in Helena, Montana, then having a bug-out location in the Bitterroots that I could get to on occasion uh, would be reasonable. But getting there from here, anything more than once or twice a year, really a big problem. And if I need to bug out quickly uh, and fall back to a safer location, the, the journey of that distance is probably going to present more dangers uh, than the safety represents at the end of it, especially if we're not talking about a well-stocked retreat with a home and uh, all the comforts and you know solar energy and all that good stuff, a homestead, and um, which is absolutely not what we're talking about today. So it's more realistic for the average person to be able to set something like this up for them, no matter where they live, within a few hours uh, of where they live, and it's really not that difficult, and it does make a difference. I know that there's people that subscribe to the end of all earth theory where everything will completely fall apart and never get put back together, and it's going to be Mad Max, and you got to be as far as possible from anywhere to be safe, and if you really wanted to be somewhere safe, you'd be on a Fijian island somewhere. Um, I subscribe to a little bit more reality that there can be times when the area we live in, especially if you live in a suburban or urban area, can become dangerous and you simply need to get out of it. And that is far more likely than Mad Max. And having a little location like we're talking about to fall back to uh, is a really great thing. But remember, the first rule of modern survivalism, everything that we do should improve our lives today, even if nothing goes wrong. And that's why I'm such a big fan of having a fallback location. It's a great thing if anything goes wrong. It's a wonderful thing to have even a small cache of supplies and some reasonable way to be comfortable and get yourself out. And not, if you have a place to go and you've gone there before and you have to go, you'll know what to do. And that's so important. I think that there are times when people have everything they need to survive and they still fail to survive because they've never played the scenario in their head. And what's called normalcy bias kicks in and the whole world starts to fall apart around them and they just say, it's okay, it's okay, it's going to be okay, it's fine, don't worry about it, we don't need to leave yet, we'll just stay here. I've seen it in people that it shouldn't be and I saw it in my brother-in-law one time who's a police officer, who deals with emergencies all the time, but you would think it wouldn't be there. Uh, I was staying at his place with his wife and his two kids uh, while we were looking for a home when we were moving back here from Pennsylvania. We had one of our bad Texas thunderstorm cells come through, really bad. And there were multiple tornado touchdowns throughout the Arlington-Mansfield area, and there was a tornado confirmed on the ground less than a mile from our location, uh, to our southwest, and it was moving diagonally northeast. In other words, we were in the direct path of it. It came over the radio. The kids were asleep in bed, and uh, his wife said, we need to get the kids downstairs and into a safe area. And he said, oh, not yet. And she looked at me and looked at him, and I said, go get them. And I think he was kind of pissed at me, but, you know, and then nothing happened. And his point was now they're scared for no, but at that point, it was, that is not a point at which you wait. What are you going to wait for? 
the, the, the roof to rip off the house. And I say nothing happened, and what I mean by nothing happened is no real structural damage happened to the house. But that storm ended up causing more financial damage to North Texas than any storm in the history of North Texas. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, mostly in fences. And his fence, in fact, was blown completely flat. Both sides of his fence line uh, on the east and west line were completely flat, and just about every fence in his neighborhood was flat, and sheds were destroyed. So what we really got was uh, the Passover of the tornado picking up uh, as... uh, as it, as it picked back up, and we got the very edge of it, so we didn't get directly hit with it. And uh, just to our south, they did. That normalcy bias comes from not playing the scenario in your head. So here's a guy that kicks down doors of drug dealers on a tactical team. He's played that scenario in his head, but playing a scenario like that that actually threatens his children, he's compartmentalized that part of his life. I think he's past that, but that's a true story. And that's why I think things like bug-out locations pay bigger dividends than you can directly see. Because the very act of having them and going there, even just to vacation and have fun, makes you play the scenario in your head. So that when it does start to come down, you know to act instead of wait. I think that's so important. Um, I also think it can save you a lot of money. And you say, okay, let's say I can find some land for 1500 to $2,000 an acre. We'll call it two grand. That's the upper end for raw land. It really is, unless you're, you know, especially the kind of land we're talking, folks. Rural land, probably no electricity or, you know, some difficulty getting electricity on. Raw rural land, two grand an acre, that's upper end. But call it two grand. Uh, let's say you get a three-acre parcel somewhere near the National Forest or something like that. Uh, that way you know there's not going to be a lot of construction around you. It'll stay that way. $6,000. And it's all often hard to look at $6,000 and go, dude, if I spend six grand, and then I have nothing, and I have to do things to it to improve that land before I can use it, how in the hell does that save me money? Well, hold on. Let me ask you this. What's the average vacation cost? You know, you go somewhere, even if you go camp in campgrounds or what have you. Generally, it's, it, it starts throwing in some money. And, I mean, if you take a trip to the beach or something like that, you can take a vacation and be out three, four $4,000 easy on one vacation. Uh, the one time we went to Sanibel Island in Florida, we spent like a week and a half. and We took a long vacation, and I think we were out over $4,000 on that vacation alone. So... If you substitute some of your vacation, this is assuming you vacation. If you don't vacation because you're completely broke, this is different. I don't want anybody going deeply into debt just to make this happen, to be clear. But if you live a normal life and occasionally two or three times a year you take a vacation, or once a year you take a vacation, even a small vacation, four-day and you know, uh, you're know you driving down somewhere and grabbing a hotel and whatever, you're, you take a few of those vacations and don't take them and go out and spend time in the woods on your own property that you own. And uh, that property can start to kind of pay dividends right away, even if nothing goes wrong. And it's just one offsetting factor. Does it pay for everything? No. And is it a real hard cost association? Not exactly. But I, what you will find if you have a place like this, a lot of times when you have that time off and you would have gone to... Uh, the beach, or you would have gone somewhere else. Instead, you'll go to your own property, and you'll end up spending less, and that means you end up with more. The other thing is, when you take a vacation, I'm not anti-vacation, folks. I'm really not. I'm going to you know, 
take probably one later in the year where I go somewhere and just a complete vacation at some point. But when you when you uh when you go on vacation, no matter how great the experience is, if you spend $2,500 or $3,000 or $1,000 or $800, I don't care what it is, once the money's spent, gone. Never comes back. There's no underlying asset. When you purchase a vacation, it doesn't go into the asset portfolio. When you purchase land, it goes into the asset portfolio. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, so I can find a piece of land for $6,000 or $10,000 or maybe even $15,000 that would fit what I'm looking for. Jack, that's still a lot of money. It is. It's far less than the average new car. It's less than the average good used car. It's a matter of choice. People can choose to drive a jalopy for four or five years and pay off the land and then drive a nicer car, or they can choose to drive a nice car all the time and never own the land. It's always a matter of choice with anything. I'm not saying what choice you should make. I'm just trying to frame it in perspective for you so that you don't think I'm just writing and saying, go write a check for $6,000. I know not everybody can do that. I know where you live, you might not be able to find a couple acres of land for $6,000, even three, three and a half, four hours away. It may not be possible. But if you get creative and you start looking, you'll be surprised at what's out there right now. Not an ideal situation, but my buddy Hal down on Lake Brownwood, bought two lots, and I think they were small. These were nowhere near acreage. They were, I think, 50 by 125 feet, but he bought two of those. So he ended up with 100 feet wide by 125 feet long uh, with the little RV on it. You know what he paid for it? $750. He actually paid nothing for it. That was how much the guy owed in back taxes on it that wasn't using it anymore. And basically the guy said, if you'll pay the back taxes, I'll give you the land deed. So if you get creative and start looking, you'll be surprised at what you can actually find. Uh, and, you know, that's not really a big homestead piece of property, but Lake Brownwood in the middle of central, South Central Texas uh, it's a pretty good place to bug out to, and he had a pretty good setup there, and it was surrounded by kind of retired people that would keep an eye on it without even a mask until. So there's always something that creative that can be done. Let's talk a little bit more, though, about what you can do once you have that piece of dirt, and you say, okay, well, I can't afford to build a house, and I really don't want to build a house because there's no one here to keep an eye on it for me, and I'm only going to be out there four, six times, seven times a year, something like that, maybe once a month at the most. And uh, so if I build a house, it's just going to get robbed and pillaged and, and everything. And, and now, Jack, I bought this land. What do I do when I go out there to kind of shape it and learn it and, and get it into some kind of a, a bug-out location with some kind of a cache of supplies? When all else fails, go to a tent. And uh, you probably don't want to do that in August or July or even June in a lot of the country. But in a lot of the rest of the times of the year... A tent is a pretty nice way to spend some time, especially with some good under-tent padding, and go with primitive camping on your own property. You'll be surprised at how different of an experience that is than primitive camping in a forest with other people around you that you don't know that are strangers that complain because you and your buddies are up playing a guitar at 11.30 at night around a campfire. And I've been through that one. You guys, you make too much noise. You're supposed to be lights out and quiet at 11. You know, we've got like four dudes singing a song. It's kind of like low-key country music, and we're 200 yards away from these people. They actually have to be straining to hear us, but they bitched, and then they went to the ranger. And the, You know, getting away from that is really, really a great thing.
I guess the other thing is that you don't have to be miserable just because you're in a tent as far as like heating and, and, the, and you know, being too hot. I mean, getting a small generator set and being able to run an electric fan through a, a tent is, uh, is kind of a really, a, a, it changes the entire dynamic. It, it, I mean, running it off an alternator, uh, what I mean, an inverter that runs out of the, the outlet of your car. Just a small fan blowing air through a tent changes everything. Not during the heat of the day, but at night, pff, you go from being miserable to completely comfortable. It's something that I did a lot back in my primitive camping days, when I did a lot of primitive camping. Uh, it was just a, you know, a battery and, a, and an inverter and a fan. And that does a lot for you. I think another thing to consider possibly for this type of situation is what they call the teardrop camping trailer. These things are inexpensive and they're small. They can be towed with a car. And basically they give you a place to sleep and a place to store your stuff. There's no big walking around in these things. But they're really cool. Uh, when I was getting my RV, I almost decided, why don't we just downsize and get a teardrop trailer? And then I realized I had this thing called a wife. And uh, the wife wasn't hip on uh, primitive camping, which is why we were considering the RV in the first place. And other than the sleeping conditions and the really cool way to store all and carry and, and, and tow all the stuff, the teardrop trailer wasn't a huge step above that. So that's why we ended up in an RV ourselves. But um, I see a lot for the people willing to accept its limitations or you're in a financial limitation with your tow vehicle and things like that, that this is the option that you have, they are really awesome. And I've seen people do a lot of things with them where they build basically awnings and, and, and setups for showers and stuff where, you know, you have this little trailer and when you open it up, you create a great deal of outdoor living space around it. Um, it's really intriguing. It almost looks addictive as a hobby to me, to, uh, to maximize and, and, and really do all you can with a teardrop trailer. So a little piece of land in a teardrop trailer would definitely, be, to me, be a step above tent camping uh, and give you a lot more flexibility, especially if you don't have a large pickup truck or something like that, with what you can tow and take along with you. And especially if you have kids, folks, the comfort level is a big deal. I also think that one thing you want on a property like this uh, maybe even if you have a little shack house or something for just outdoor enjoyability, is you want to get yourself a, a, a good, uh, simple uh, screen home, a screen house, like they sell in like sporting goods stores, basically a gazebo that's screened in. Uh, you can buy those things for under 100 bucks, a 10 by 10 something like that, screening out insects. Uh, ruin, ruin, ruin a vacation. The kids are itchy, scratchy, bugs are biting. So yeah, take the insect repellent and all, but create some kind of, uh, while you're out there, both uh, in a bug out situation or just in a recreational situation, a sanctuary from flying, stinging, biting insects. Uh, one of the biggest things you can do, especially just to kick back in a hammock or uh, to kick, you know, some of the hammocks have the bug screen around them or to kick back in a cot in a, uh, in a uh, you know, kind of a screen gazebo type situation, uh, make your life a lot better. Um, I also have seen a lot of people do quite a bit with converting old cargo trailers, and I've seen these things done up really, really cool. I've seen the ones that have basically the whole back just kind of lowers down like a ramp and I've seen people set them up with uh, with fold out legs 
so that when you bring the back end of that cargo trailer down, it basically becomes a floor and uh, create basically a screen back there and then have beds built into them. And I've seen people do all kinds of crazy things with uh, with cargo trailers, especially a lot of hunters. I've even seen kind of the redneck jerry-rigged uh, air conditioners shoved into the side of one. And hey, you know what? It works. At least you'll sleep comfortably as long as you've got a generator that will run the dadgone thing. Um, so there's, again, there's a lot that can be done creatively with those. I guess I could probably do a show it of itself on converting cargo trailers and converting things like, you know, old school buses and old vans and things into uh, into campers. Maybe someday I'll do a, a show like that. I think that'd be kind of cool. But just keep the mind open that there are options other than the flat-out RV, the big full-tilt RV, or building a house, or, or, or going to the minimalism of a tent. There are in-betweens there. That said, um, after finally buying and owning an RV, I think if you can make it happen, and there's a lot of used RVs out there for 6000 bucks, lots of them right now, or less. Uh, are they the greatest? No, but the, you know they're better than a tent. And there's a lot that can be done uh, from a standpoint of having a, a, even a small RV that you tow out to a place like that. It's a big upgrade. I'm not big on leaving it out there unless you have people to watch it, like how situation, you know, kind of surrounded by old retired men that, you know, grew up shooting guns in West Texas. That's a pretty safe place to leave your RV, and I don't think he had any real problems down there other than somebody yanked a solar panel off his roof one time. Uh, but in a lot of situations, you know, leaving an RV on a piece of land is just a recipe for somebody to, uh, to pull up, hook up, and tow your house away. So it's something that you need to look at, whether or not you're going to be comfortable towing it back and forth, whether you have a vehicle capable of towing it back and forth in. Where are you going to store it? Because a lot of residential areas, it's not a good place to store an RV. Uh, we just moved ours to a storage facility until we move. It's uh, it's kind of, you know, aggravating to the neighbors, I think, to have this huge RV in, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, driveway. Um, we have a huge backyard, but we have no access to it for something that size, so... Um, it's something you have to consider on the RV side. But I think RVs have a huge advantage for this type of use. And um, it makes me also realize how lucky you are when you have something like that. Uh, when we went to the Hood, Hood's Woods camp out, I was told that the little hill that all the RVs were up on that I was now part of was called Snob Hill. Uh <laughs> And it was kind of a dig at us. But what it really meant is while we're down here sweating in our tents in the middle of the day uh, and, and scratching mosquito bites, you guys are up there with the AC pumping and uh, kicked back on the couch listening to the radio drinking a cold margarita. And uh, then we're all out at night when it's cool and, and it, it, there is an advantage. I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot of other things, though, that you can do. I think one of the things that I, I think makes a lot of sense uh, for the remote bug out location that you come hang out in once in a while is what I call the empty shack. And the empty shack is where you put, and you might even do this with, you know, those buildings that you see out in front of like Home Depot and whatnot like that. Um, you know, if you wanted a quick, easy thing is, is have one of those brought in and set up. And basically don't store anything in it. Or don't store much, don't store anything in it that you would be that uh, distraught if somebody took away. Or just get out there and build, you know, like an old mining shack, basically. Just like the old hermit shack for yourself. Now, why would you do this? Well, because when you get there, you have a base of operations. You have a place where you can get dry. You have a place where you can uh, initiate a lot of climate control. And I think for people 
that are maybe going to be out in that rural area that you don't really have a neighbor to watch things, uh, and you want the closest thing to a house that you can have without the risks that go along with putting a lot of money into a piece of property like that and having it damaged, destroyed, not be there when you get there, the empty shack is the way to go. And you say, Jack, well, what good is an empty shack? You have the shell. And you can also, we'll talk in a minute here, about caching items on the property in a way where they're difficult, if not impossible, to find. So that you could go out there and then take the stuff from your cache into your empty shack. Here's my thoughts on the empty shack, though, especially if you get a piece of property that you have the ability to have electricity brought into uh, or you have the ability to set up solar electricity uh, and a generator hookup at. It'd be nice if you had even a, you know, a 10 by 10 building that was warm uh, in the winter and cool in the summer and, and dry and a window or two in it, even if it was completely, totally empty. If you had some, maybe some uh, built-in fold-down beds off the wall that could be, you know, an air mattress or a roll-up mattress or a foam mattress thrown on to sleep on while you're there. Uh, maybe a cutout in the wall or a window that's big enough that when you're not there, it's just you screw a board over top of it or what have you. That when you show up, you can just you know bring with you a small window unit air conditioner that sells for $150, $200. Pop that sucker in there, and it's it's cool in the summer. Come in the winter time, bring a propane tank and a propane heater. It doesn't take much to heat a 10 by 10 uh, building, especially if you insulate it a little bit. So it's basically like having a mini micro homestead house. You can put some off-grid capabilities with it. The best thing would be to marry off-grid with on-grid. In other words, be able to have some solar power capability for it, some level of battery backup for it. But if you can get electricity run, spend the money and get the electricity run. And there's a lot of property out there that you could get you know, a simple circuit brought in from the electrical company for very little money. So it's something I definitely think you should consider. If you're doing the RV route and you can get electricity brought in, bring that big old 30-amp circuit. Basically, put in your an RV pad, right? Put a box over it, lock it up, chain it up, do everything you can protect it to keep people from siphoning your power. Um, you do have a little bit of a risk there, but not that much. And I'm going to tell you some other ways to keep your property safe in just a second. But that would be awesome. Either the empty shack with electricity run to it, or the RV pad with electricity run to it. You can go there and spend a long time in that situation in relative comfort. Definitely comfortable enough to deal with two weeks of rioting in your, in your suburban area that you just want to get away from. 30 to 60 days of a pandemic threat where you just want to, you just decide, I'm going to self-impose quarantine. I'm not risking my family being exposed to that. And to me, those are your two most likely situations where Unless you live in a hurricane-prone area or something like that, they're the most likely situations where you have to bug out. Or, you know what, we're going to move two hours away and we're going to stay here while they re rebuild Mommy and Daddy's house and, and your house, Johnny, that burned to the ground. And we're going to have independence and autonomy during that period of time. There's, there's a lot of scenarios where a little setup like that, maybe it's not the perfect place to live. Maybe it's not where you want to spend the rest of your life. But... It can be enjoyable as recreational property, and in those scenarios, it's a good fallback location. Let's talk about, you know, building the underground home. You can do it. You may not like it. It's awful dark down there. It's uh, cold. There is a climate control. I mean, if you go under even just a foot underground, you're never going to freeze, and you're never going to be that hot. 
It's, it's amazing what happens. I talked about this last time I talked about this subject, but one of the coolest things I've ever seen done was on a show called Man Caves, and this guy bought some of these huge concrete sewer pipes and basically had somebody come in and fit them together and bury them, and he put a wood floor where you could hide stuff underneath the wood floor so like it was storage, almost like a, it almost looked like a submarine or a boat in there, and he, he made it beautiful. He paneled up the walls, and he put in a stereo system, and I mean, this guy made it like, you know, his little man, a real man cave, and it was, you know, it was cool. Big screen TV, on one, well, it wasn't really that big, because you only have so much distance uh, back, but it was, you know, a nice flat screen TV, probably... It's probably a 36-inch screen or something like that. and It was really, really cool. Well, that could be done and hidden a little bit better and not as decked out in a bug-out location. My, my issue there is you're getting into a level of expense now that you may be better off just finding a property with a caretaker with a daggone house on it by the time you go to that expense. It's, it's more expensive than you think it would be to do something like that, to create something like that. The alternative, though, is keeping supplies and materials underground, not developing stuff for a life underground. To marry that with the small shack, the tent camping, the teardrop trailer, the RV, uh, what have you, any, anything like that, um, there's, there's a lot you can do to keep material there underground. What I'll describe for you is what I believe is the ideal way to construct this uh, using the lay of the land to your advantage, and you can decide where you want to go from there with it. I believe if you're looking for property that you're going to build an underground cache on, you don't want flat property. You want property with a slope. And you want to build your underground uh, hidden area on a high area of that ground. And hear me out. Here's why. If you're going to build, let's say, a little underground, would look almost like a, a root cellar, and you wanted to build it, let's say, 10 feet by 10 feet, uh, and you wanted a six-foot man to be able to stand in the center of it and not bump his head unless he at least stood on his tippy toes, let's say, or was wearing really thick-soled boots, so about six feet high. Uh, you'd want to go down probably about eight feet, and you'd want two feet of crushed rock in the floor. Building your walls out of uh, cinder block, you could do a construction project like this, uh, doing the masonry yourself and all, it ain't that hard. Fairly inexpensively hire somebody with an excavator to dig the hole out for you or rent an excavator if you know how to run one. Digging that by hand will take you so long that it will definitely pay to use an equipment operator for this. Um, build the walls and then backfill around it and create some type of a hidden entrance into this facility underground. But while you're using that excavator, what you then want to do is coming out of the bottom, dig a trench. It might be very deep at first and keep going to the, the, the following the slope of the land down and lay drainage pipe into that drench, into that trench and take the trench far enough to where when it, when it pokes out of the ground, it's, you know, had eight foot of drop at least. Uh, of land slope, and that means the bottom of that drain pipe will be lower than the bottom of your shelter, which means your shelter won't ever flood, because it's going to be very difficult for you to keep it from flooding with things like a sump pump uh, and things like that with redundancy, and if you're not there and your redundancy on your sump pump fails, um, you can lose everything that you've stored. And it would really suck not to show up for a vacation and have lost a lot of your supplies and have to replenish them, but to show up when you actually need them and have had a lot of your supplies ruined due to water damage. 
So I think that's one of the biggest things you can do there. Two, I think that that type of a structure needs to have a steel door, and it needs to be well hidden. And even if found, anybody with anything less than an oxacetylene torch or a wrecking ball ain't getting into it. Spend the extra dollars to build that sucker strong. If you ever decide to build, you know, like if their long-term horizon plan is, eventually I'm going to come out here and I'm going to build my dream home and I'm going to live here, and I think for a lot of people it will be, then that will be a wonderful storm shelter. It will be a wonderful fortification. It may be something you end up building your house over top of. It may be something you build your house in a different area from, and it's a freestanding structure. But it will be a tremendous asset down the road. It's worth, if you're going to put a lot of materials out on a property, it's worth securing it and making it safe and storing that way. It also create a very stable storage temperature. You know, that's going to be a place you can stick that mountain house, those cases of mountain house food. And 10 years from now, it's going to be fine. You'll be able to go out there and use it. Uh, that is, if you're going to cache a lot of stuff, that's the best you can do. You can do this smaller. You know, you can use native rock or you can use some concrete and you can dig a two foot deep hole that's five foot long by two feet wide and case it off and put some drainage underneath it and put a plate of uh, quarter inch, you know, junk steel over top of it and cover it with debris. And that's better than you know, a little spider hole like that. It's better than nothing. And you can keep some stuff there and that's fine. But if you're going to keep a lot of stuff, if you're going to keep 30 days or more of supplies, then I would look to doing a, a larger, more fortified and hidden structure. So hopefully that gives you some ideas. And that by all means is not the only way to get these things done or the only really high quality way. It's just if you ask me off the cuff, how would you do it if you had, let's say, a couple thousand dollars of budget and you wanted to get this done right? What I've just described to you is what I would do. And what you would find is you could probably get the guy with the excavator to do the work for about... Probably about $150. Most of those guys charge about $50 an hour. Maybe $300 because they're probably going to charge you $50 for the trip out there, or what they call a truck roll. He's not going to want to leave his machine around while you do the work uh, and sit there idle. Uh, and it's probably going to take you a while to do the work, so he's going to have to come out to excavate and come back out to backfill. Another option that you would have, though, is to have them do the excavation, do the backfilling. Backfilling is going to be a lot of work manually, but it can be done. It's, it can be done a hell of a lot easier than the excavation portion. So those are just some ideas there. Um, let's talk about some things that you can do with that property, regardless of how you set it up, uh, both to make it more valuable to you long term and to um, make it safe and less likely to have two-legged rats uh, ruin things for you. Uh, I've got some interesting stuff for you today on that. One, I don't think anybody that's listened to the show for any length of time is going to be shocked to hear me say, I think you should encourage wildlife on the property, especially sources of protein uh, and, uh, and so other sources of food. So if you have property with blackberries on it, then I think you should find some section of those blackberries and clear them out and create less competition for them and mulch them uh, heavily with native mulches so that you have uh, thicker, juicier, better blackberry production out of that stand of blackberries. If you have hickory trees, one of the things that you can do is heavily mulch uh, rock circles around them, uh, throw a bunch of beans in there, and help provide nitrogen with the beans. You probably won't get much of a bean crop because eventually what happens when you do this, if you're not there often, inevitably the spring rains make the beans sprout. The beans start to climb up the tree, 
but since they're shallow, they can only get so far before kind of the dry period comes, and then the beans die back to the ground. But all of that has dropped more nitrogen in the soil and helped those hickories or those oaks. And I do that at our place in Arkansas. I even have a video in the members' brigade that shows how we did that. And that's exactly what happened. We got, I think we got like five beans the next time we went up there, and that was it. Um, so it wasn't about getting the beans. It was about improving the, the, uh, the soil quality. Uh, for the trees so that they had more nitrogen without any fertilizer or any real effort. Uh, it also already has kind of this nice little place set up that if we ever went there and we had to rely on gardening as a food source, we've kind of got that bed prepared already. And uh, with a little bit of manual watering, we could turn that into food production quickly. Setting up a little food plot for deer, um, setting up uh, native uh, plant life that, that is uh, good for forage like lamb's quarters, now, which is actually an invasive species, but you might as well call it a native now, uh, orach and things like that. Anything you can do that will grow and either provide food for you as forage when you go there or provide food and attract wildlife, absolutely, I think, is, is a great idea. That's all I'll say on that today. I want to talk now about kind of keeping people out and keeping your stuff safe and making it less likely. There's no such thing as a piece of property that no one will find anything, no one will steal anything, no one will ruin anything. It's completely 100% guaranteed safe. It doesn't exist. But there are some interesting low-tech, low-cost things that you can do. One is, and this is one of the things that, that a lot of uh, people with PA deer camps do, uh, you put up a sign, and that sign says, Shooting range on property. Danger. That's it, right? Or danger, uh, shooting range on this property. Danger, target shooting on property. Uh, something like that. What does that say? It says a couple things. One, uh, somewhere on this property is a place for people shoot guns. And I could just walk into a crossfire without realizing it. I don't know if anybody's here or not. I don't know if anybody's shooting here or not right now. But there could be live fire going on. Two, people here are armed. People here might shoot me. If I'm, if I'm a vagrant. It doesn't say keep out or I'll shoot, right? Because that can get you into some legal problems in certain situations. It simply announces the fact that there's armed people on the property. Um, if you have a choice as a criminal to go to a place where people are definitely armed or possibly not armed, which one would you prefer? So I've always found that sign to be particularly useful. Another sign that I found really effective was a gentleman I used to hunt on his uh, little ranch he had down in Central Texas for wild hogs. And he had a sign right at his gate, and it said, You're not lost, you're trespassing. That's all it said. He said he had had so many different threatening signs on that, on that uh, little gate. And it never helped, because they were only out there like they were out there Friday uh, through Sunday night. They would come out Friday afternoon, set up and have hunters come in for Saturday and Sunday, and then they would leave Sunday evening. So that was, uh, that was how they ran their operation. It wasn't a full-time operation. So once the kind of the criminal element discovered that they weren't there during certain parts of the week, they'd start showing up and looking through stuff and trying to steal stuff. Well, of course, they would start doing, you know, random show up and check on the place uh, inspections and catch these people. And they would always be told, oh, I, I was lost. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I was trying to, and it was like a one-way-in, one-way-out road. No way you could have made a wrong turn or something. But I'm lost, and uh, uh, can you tell me how to get back to the highway? Yeah, turn around and go back the way you came. And he said it was something about that sign when they put that sign up there. And it must have just made people get that sick feeling in their stomach 
when they looked at it and realized, hey, that excuse is gone. And basically the sign says no excuses. All right. And uh, so there are a lot of creative things that you can do with signage. And sometimes the good old-fashioned no trespassing sign is less effective than something that's spray-painted on a piece of plywood and a little bit more creative. Um, like I said, the caution shooting range was something we used a lot and seemed to have pretty good effect. Uh, obviously, it's not going to affect somebody who means to do harm and, and, and looks at it simply as I'm armed too. But again, all you're trying to do is mitigate the circumstances. I also believe fences make a huge difference. Um, they say that fences only keep honest people out. I believe that fences keep honest people out and they also keep dishonest people out who don't want to get caught either without an excuse or are afraid of the repercussions of being caught in a situation where it's obvious what they're up to. And I think like the low-cost way to fence a couple acres obviously is barbed wire and uh, using posts or using uh, you know T-posts or using even the tree lines, uh, the native trees and things like that. And it's, it's, it's at least something. Uh, it's probably not my top priority. In some ways, it can be a disadvantage. Sometimes it actually defines the property line too well, and it makes people understand exactly what's there. The same thing with signs. It's, it's one of those six of one, half a dozen of the other things, where you have to look at the surrounding area, what the people are like, what the property's like, what kind of properties are around it, what type of people are in the area, what type of ways in and out of the property there are. If you have a property that's very difficult to identify the way into it or out of it in the first place, um, no signs and no fencing and no anything may be the way to go. Uh, or collapsing the fence in so that you have to get onto the property before you even see the fencing. Uh, a kind of like a little hole in, in the wilderness type of situation. Which brings, brings me to one of the coolest things that I ever saw anybody do. And uh, this was a guy named Pete. We all called him Petey, good family friend. Used to take me uh, uh, fishing a lot up in north northern Pennsylvania uh, for pickerel um, up there on uh, was the Cinnamonning River. And uh, he had this little place he used to go deer hunting up there. And he had basically a little RV, and it was beat to shit, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, you know, a couple car batteries rigged up, and this little piece of crap noisy generator that he brought but we'd go stay up there to go fishing you know and uh, he uh, he would get to the entrance and you'd look and he'd see nothing he'd just drive in on this dirt road and there's nothing there and he'd turn the truck and he knew right where to turn the truck and he'd drive through kind of these branches that were all hanging down and stuff and he'd drive about six feet in and it would open up to a little it was really more like a four wheeler path than a road but he let the whole entrance grow in. Now, there were no big trees. He would get out with uh, loppers once in a while and cut anything that was growing up that was too big. But he basically just let it grow in and envelop around it. And I guess he had a tree mark because it seemed to me like he never even looked. He just would come down the road and hang right and, and go back in there. And then we would drive about 15 feet. And we'd get to this huge hole. It was just about a two-foot-wide, two-foot-deep trench that went right across the uh, the path, and about six feet, I would say, into the woods on both sides. It looked like he'd gotten somebody back there one day with a, with a little bucket uh, excavator and just cut this two-foot-deep hole. He's a cheap guy. He probably dug it by hand with an e-tool, knowing that guy. So we got there. I remember the first time we got there, I said, what the hell's that? He goes, 
That keeps people out with vehicles. So he gets out of the vehicle and he walks off into the woods and he comes back and he's carrying these two huge heavy oak planks. He says, there's two more over there, go get them. So I went and got them. He lays them across the trench and these are big oak planks. They look like something that came out of like these old buildings in, in rural Pennsylvania. They're about, I'd say, three inches thick. And they're about eight inches wide. I mean, they don't even make anything like this anymore. And what he had is a pile of rocks so these things weren't laying on the ground so that they would keep airflow and they wouldn't rot. And uh, they're about six foot long. You laid them, you know, across this two-foot thing. He drove the truck across and he left them there. He said, as long as we're here, we'll leave them there. Before we leave, we'll put them back. And I said, Petey, why don't you keep them in the back of your truck? Because that way they'd be safe, they wouldn't rot, and no one could get their hands on them to use them to get over your, your moat or whatever the hell this thing is, you know. And I was like a 14-year-old kid. I thought this guy was like the coolest guy in the world after this. And he goes, look, he goes, I might have to come up here someday and I don't have my truck. He goes, I might have one of my relations come up here and they don't have the planks. I tell them where they are, they can get in and out. No one's going to find those things, and if they do, they do. But it's one thing that keeps people out. And... uh I don't know, I thought that was pretty cool. And he also told me, he said, that old oak, he said, that old oak kid, he said, that stuff, he said, I'll be in the ground and dead and buried, and uh, my body will be rotten in the ground, and that oak will still be solid. And that old man is gone now, and uh, he is in the ground somewhere. Hopefully he's uh, pursuing fishing game on the other side, because that's what he loved to do. But I wouldn't be surprised if those oak planks are still being used by, you know, his uh, one of his nephews or something like that, because uh, he was right about that stuff. We had it in our basement in our house in Pennsylvania, and you could barely get a nail into it. And if you put a drill into it, it would smoke a drill bit. So that's just another example of something that could be done. And that could be done with metal ramps. It could be done with anything. But, you know, clearly you see the, the advantage to something like that, two and a half feet, of this straight drop, just about any vehicle you drive into that, you're going to bottom it out and you're going to damage it and you're not going to be able to go anywhere. And uh, people are not likely to try to get across that. Uh, and then the woods themselves were an impediment to going around it. It just was another one of those things to keep people out. And it, it, is it 100%? No. But it's a lot harder for somebody to steal your 30 days' worth of supplies if they have to walk back and forth for hundreds of yards at a time than if they can back up and load up a truck. And they feel a lot, people feel a lot more exposed, folks, even if they feel like they're in the middle of nowhere when they have to go on foot over and over. And the other thing about criminals, here's the big thing about criminals. The harder you make them work to steal something, the less likely to steal it because criminals in general are not hardworking people. If they were, they wouldn't be criminals. They'd go get their ass a job and do something. So in at least in most situations, everything you do to slow down or impede or make it harder is less likely to end up losing everything that you have. So that was one of my, my really, uh, really fond memories of childhood was that old man. And he was, uh, and he was an old Korean war vet. And I, God knows where he came up with that, but I always thought it was cool. Speaking of the military, I want, to, I want to wrap up today with something that I think is very important that you think about if you're going to, uh, to take this route, especially without a home uh, on the property, without kind of a caretaker type arrangement or anything like that. You're going to be going out there and having stuff cashed, and you're going to have to be bringing a lot of things with you. Uh, when I was in the military, we had something called a T-O-N-E. This was called a Table of Organization and Equipment, and... Uh, the entire army, the entire army has a T.O. and D. Uh, every brigade has a T.O. and D. 
every unit has a TONE. And when you get down to it, every major piece of equipment has a TONE. And all that is is a list of everything that's supposed to be on that vehicle. And if it's something that's supposed to go with that vehicle but not stored with that vehicle, where is it stored? And it's an accountability and an inventory of the equipment. And if something gets used or broken, it's used as justification for replacement. Do you need to have it exactly like the military does with your TONE? No. But if you are going to rely on a bug out location where you might have to grab and get, you need a TONE. You need to sit down, and this will be something that will still be a living, unlike the military, where they've got all these logistical specialists that have got it all figured out, and when they bring in a new Hemet wrecker, they already know everything that goes with that Hemet record, and it's already ready to go because the giant TONE that overlays the entire army says so. And they make their updates occasionally. You are going to be in a situation where, okay, let's go camping. Let's go camping on Mommy and Daddy's new bug allocation. You pack the kids up, take the teardrop trailer or whatever you have, and you roll out there. And you get there, and there's some hole in what you've planned, and something doesn't work, and the kids are miserable because of it, or you're not happy, or there's a fight or an argument or whatever. Get a notebook out, write down what it was, and write down what would fill the hole. And over time, maybe after a year of going out there every couple months, you'll have a pretty good idea of what you need to take with you formalize that, keep that equipment ready to go at all times. On some level, I don't get real militant with you guys, but on some level you need to think like the military. And from an organizational structure, that's really the point where you need to do that. Everything ready to go where you could be out the door in 30 minutes with everything that you need without planning four days in advance. Because here's the problem. That's how you'll plan your camping trips. Nothing wrong with that, but that's the icing. Okay, that's the, the the stuff that you talk about for four days, and hey, let's run and get this particular kind of beer or a bottle of wine or this particular type of cokes the kids like that they're normally not allowed to have, but they can have when we're out there. We're gonna roast marshmallows or all that crap, right? You know, I, I want to get a new fishing rod. We're gonna hit that little creek that's on the way, and whatever. All that stuff, that's fine. But the core, the cake, not the icing, that needs to be packed, ready to go, or. The, the, the documentation, your T-O-N-E, needs to say where it is. So maybe it's not all strategically located in one place, ready to just pitch and run, but where is it? And that's why I think there is a big advantage to things like a, a converted cargo trailer, a small RV, or a teardrop trailer. Because a lot of that stuff can just live there. It can just stay there. I'm really beginning to understand the beauty of that with my RV. I really am. Having everything that we need all that's packed, it's ready to go, we can hook it up and take off. There's even some food in there, and there's emergency supplies. And yes, it's duplication, and yes, it's an additional expense. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, though. Like, one of the things is we have our soft kit uh, for our blackout kit. And that's sitting up over our... Uh, over our washer and dryer. Well, if we have to run with the RV, we know that's one of the things on the list. Grab it, stick it in there, and go. But I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to document what needs to go and document where it is and occasionally go through that checklist and make sure that it's all still there and all still functioning. 
one of the one of the duties I had in the military as a mechanic was I had what's called the Ho- Hotel Eight certification, which was uh, a recovery specialist. So what that meant is when somebody did something really stupid and got his truck stuck in a really dangerous situation and it needed to be pulled out, I was the dumb young kid that would go down there and pull that truck out and risk my life for a truck because I was too stupid to know better. And a wrecker has a lot of equipment with it, a, a tremendous amount of equipment with it. And as the person responsible for that wrecker, about once every 90 days, I would get an inspection. And I and my partner with that wrecker, we would have to take everything out and lay it out. And it wasn't just laid out. It was laid out in a particular order. This box opens. This pry bar goes here. These wrenches line up this way. We even had these little tarps that had outlines on them. And I don't think you need to go this far. I'm just telling you what the military is like. So you lay the tarp down, and there's like a little outline of every piece of equipment. And you put the piece of equipment on the outline. And when the inspector comes by, if you're missing one, there's the outline. It's not there. And you can't fudge. Right? Because if you put something there to hide it, and it's not the right tool, it doesn't match the outline. Now, again, you don't have to go this far. But I think if you take that basic approach, you're going to have a lot of confidence. And I want to come back. I always try to bring the show, the two ends of the show together. When I started today's show, I talked more about how to think than the bug out location. I talked more about normalcy bias than the advantage of having the empty shack. I talked about the fact that people sit in the middle of a disaster and twiddle their thumbs and rock back and forth and ignore the freaking danger to the point where you just want to smack them. And we see these in, this in Hollywood movies, right? Where you just want to reach through the screen and grab the actor by the throat and wrap them around and go, wake up, you're going to die. Don't go out there. Don't do this or get up and go, right? Your house is burning, leave. But it happens in real life too. And it happens because the mind can't accept the jar in reality that has occurred because it's never simulated it before. So the person has everything that they need to survive, sits in the house and burns to, well, it burns to the ground around them, figuratively or literally, one way or the other. When you set up, and this is, I don't care if you have a bug out location or not, the, the T-O-N-E concept, everything that's going, where it's stored, and going through and inspecting it once in a while, you will not be able to go through this one kit bag, pull it out, you know, maybe you have a little notebook shoved in there with the inventory for the bag. Go through it and go, oh, that one's missing. We need a new box of band-aids. I don't know what the hell you need, right? Whatever it is. And put it, you won't be able to do that without thinking, wow, if we ever need this, then we're going to have to put this here and, you know, what could, all of a sudden your mind goes. This is not paranoia. This is a basic human concept that when you start to think about, you see, Let me put it to you this way. There's a reason we tell stories. The human mind is not content with things that don't end. That's why we all love and hate cliffhangers at the same time, you know? The end of that season of that show you like where, you know, there's a person that that, that was going to quit, quit, but they didn't quit, or maybe they're still going to quit, or something blew up and are they dead or not. And all, as you wait for the other side to come back around and that new season to pick up, You'll run mental simulations in your head. Maybe he is dead. What would they do? Who would they replace him with? What rumors are going on, right? And if somebody tells you a story that doesn't have a finite conclusion, we tend to, this is part of what happens with conspiracy theorists. If the, if the, if the story doesn't end, they fill in the blanks. Sometimes they fill in the blanks too much, and that's where they go out in the foil hat world. But this is a reality. It's a weakness, and it's a strength. 
if you put into your head, we could have to leave because the mind will take over at that point and begin to run mental simulations. You can't stop it. You can't prevent it. And you don't want to. So that when you turn the TV on and two miles away from you, there's a hundred people in a crowd rocking a car, which, folks, we came so close to that. Right here in Arlington. This is a nice place. We came so close to that just a little over a month ago. There was a huge crowd together. And an off-duty police officer from Houston ended up shooting a 17-year-old kid that was carrying a weapon and was one of the few people that wouldn't disperse when he ordered them to and reached for the weapon and got shot. And then that almost turned into a riot. A mile away from here. When you turn the TV on and it didn't almost happen, it did happen. And you're seeing it start to grow and you go, shit, that's a mile away, that's a mile, two miles away from here. Ugh, what should we do? I don't know. I think it'll be okay. You just go, you know what? Grab the, grab the stuff. Let's go. Let's get out. Let's get everything. We have time. Let's do it organized. Let's do it structured. Let's not panic. Let's go. Worst thing happens, we take an unscheduled two-day vacation. If everything melts down around us, we won't be stuck in the middle of it. Or maybe you do decide to stay and defend your property. But either way, you do it with an open mind rather than an... Uh, I can't... You know, it, what amazes me is like I heard this girl being interviewed on the radio here by, uh, uh, I don't know who it was, but it was on the Chris Croc show yesterday, uh, where this guy almost blew up this building in downtown Dallas uh, uh, almost a year ago now, I guess, when he tried to do it. The big blue building that we have in the middle of downtown Dallas. She worked in the building. And this guy's on trial right now, and I think his trial's about to wrap up. So they asked her about it. She never knew. She works in the building. She's been there for years. She never knew. She's like, oh, really? Oh, I never heard about it. I can't believe. Why would anybody want to blow this place? This is such a pretty building. I don't know why anybody would want to blow it up. And you know what? The, the, the DJ, Chris Crock, said she probably got back in her car and turned the radio on, listening to the music and just and forgot about it. And he's probably right. But it's easy to look down your nose at people like that. And it's hard to accept the fact that even though you're prepared in a lot of ways, when something comes out of left field, you could become one of them. You could become one of them rather quickly. Well, you don't have to be. The more you're aware and the more you're prepared and the more you're confident in your ability, not paranoid, not scared, not hiding, but the more you're prepared to deal with any situation, the more likely you are to do the most important thing so that you'll survive danger. Recognize it when you see it so you can react to it appropriately. Having a bug out location is just one way to make that happen. Make sure you're organized, make sure you're prepared, and make sure you're paying attention. Remember, folks, I will not be with you tomorrow. I am going to be on vacation. I will not be doing a show on Memorial Day. I'll be back Tuesday. Remember, we do have a discount running on the member support brigade. Use code PATRIOT to get your first year of the member brigade for only $30. And with that, I will sign off. This is the Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. It's not to get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way
Nobody up there cares, they're losing 